Hey, everybody. It's Michelle, and I am completely cup runneth over with joy because today I get to announce that Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders is 100% done and in publication, and you can check out your copy on Amazon. And the best part, if that book moves you, if it grows your evidence-based triangle to to engage in interprofessional practice, to do the root cause analysis to why the child is presenting with the PFD, to then engage with the team to get that child to a point of healing so that the real growth can begin, then y'all check out speechtherapypd.com because they are gracious enough to entertain all of these amazing, joyful ideas. And they're currently carrying the book for 13.5 ASHA CEUs. So (sighs) thank you for being a part of the first bite journey that led to chasing the swallow. And be sure to check out speechtherapypd.com for the 13.5 ASHA CEUs that accompany it. Happy learning. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina, and I guess lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy joy and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee by way of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Okay, y'all. Pulling today's episode off was literally a Hail Mary pass that required tech support, Michelle learning about international zoning time laws, and 
good God, I cocked that up on a royal level. And then right before we went to record tonight, I kid you not, a thunderstorm blew through, the power flickered, the tech failed. I almost lost three months of episodes and the dog knocked Bear's tooth off out of his mouth all in the span of 45 minutes. But you know what? We survived. Thank you, Jesus. And I can't believe we did because I am so excited that basically every planet fell into a retrograde in order for today to happen. And we have the one and only Dr. Jean Marshall from Australia. And and we pulled it off and she's here. And I totally didn't even include how last week we bailed and had to like, I screwed up the days of the week and was cleaning hamster cages when she got on the call. So thank you for braving the world to be with us. <laughs> that is okay. I'm really happy to be here. We made it. <laughs> we, we made it. And it's not your crazy, it's mine. But like, that's a lot of crazy to compact into one life's week's event. But yes, so hi. Hello. <laughs> Dr. Jean Marshall has two financial disclosures that need to be shared. She is an employee and receives a salary from the Children's Health Queensland Hospital and Health Service, as well as from the University of Queensland. Dr. Marshall, thank you so much for coming today. Okay, so I have a ton of questions. Now, y'all, last year, her and I met through the planning period with ASHA for ASHA 2022 PFD convention. And it was amazing because her and Rocky and Kristen and I were in a small group and it was just so much fun to be able to pick your brain and get your insight. So I asked her to come back so she could kind of talk to us about her world and her research in Brisbane. But the setup and the process of becoming a speech pathologist in Australia is different. Your association is different. Can you kind of take us from the beginning, like what made you want to be an SLP? What made you want to get into PFD and move us forward? Yeah, sure. In terms of what made me want to be a speech pathologist, I was actually interested in that even when I was at high school and did some work experience in that area. So, I mean, originally I wanted to be a teacher, but a wonderful guidance counsellor at school suggested I might be interested in speech pathology. So set me up with some observations and I found it really interesting and then ended up going and studying at university to do that. So we do have a bit of a different program in Australia. We and I did a four-year undergrad program and that qualifies us to go and work as a speech pathologist. So it's a little bit different to your system in the US. So, yeah, I worked for a few years across a few different settings, worked in schools, worked in private practice, worked in like a community health setting, and then fell into this acute care setting that I ended up really loving, doing a little bit of acute care, a little bit of kind of outpatient follow-up with these patients as well. Was it with peds or with adults? Peds. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've always just worked with peds. So that sort of first 10 years of my career, I really had sort of quite a wide range of different clinical experiences. But I guess through that acute care and outpatient care pathway that I started following, I started to see patterns where 
the same thing would happen. These, these children would be really ill, very unwell, and parents would start to notice all these feeding problems. And then they'd be discharged and they'd still have feeding problems. And it would kind of be like the speech pathologist was a little bit alone in trying to advocate for some of these families in, in trying to improve these feeding problems. And, you know, so often families I find are, are not listened to or dismissed. And no matter what you do as a therapist, some of those myths persist like, you know, they'll eat when they're hungry. Oh, they won't starve themselves. They're not underweight. They're fine. They're just being naughty. It's behavioral, etc. So that happens here, but I work in the southeast portion of America. So because I have breast, I don't have brains because sexism is and all of the isms are rampant here. So yeah. 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 It's really hard, isn't it? Anyway, so I guess I, I saw that journey that families were having from early on over and over and over again, and I felt quite frustrated as an individual therapist and at that point decided to go into research to try and kind of make a broader difference, if I could, for the lives of some of these children that had feeding problems. So when you, and I know we're going to talk more about your research, but when you were like talking about making a broader difference, were you thinking like when you went into pursuing research that you were going to like tie in physician care to caregiver? Is is that what you were envisioning? Oh, I think I was too early in my understanding of research and what it could do <laughs> to make decisions at that point. But I think I just hit a point where I was frustrated in being unable to really change the system of care. And, you know, and it is still a problem. So clearly I haven't personally changed much, but the awareness of PFD is something that really needs to change internationally. And I guess a lot of what Feeding Matters are working so hard to do is to try and change that. Way. And I'm just curious, we have ASHA. There's the Australian Speech Pathology Association. Yes. Do, does, what is y'all's acronym? SPA. So Speech Pathology Australia is our national body. Beautiful. Okay. That's, that's a lot better than Georgia. Georgia's the state next door to me and theirs is Gasha and it sounds oh. like a wound. <laughs> so like, Georgia, I love you. But like, so I'm always, okay. So when SPA has their annual conferences, are they well attended like ASHA? Like are y'all pulling a majority of your country's SLPs? I wouldn't say, or oh, we don't have as many speech pathologists in Australia as you would in America. So, I mean, comparatively, because I've been to both conferences, comparatively the SPA conference is much smaller, but it is a great representation of all of our different speech pathologists across Australia. And, yeah, I mean, we, I went in May to that. And it was the first one that we had face-to-face in a couple of years, obviously, and it was absolutely wonderful just to see everybody, spend time catching up, yeah, just build new relationships. It it was really great. Because I was thinking that would be really neat to get if Feeding Matters hadn't been to SPA yet, like they've come to ASHA, that would be a really cool outreach and empowering opportunity. Yes. Okay. So Feeding Matters, folks, if you're listening – I will volunteer to go to spa. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> like we should probably send Kyler. 
should come next year because it's in Hobart in Tasmania, which is absolutely beautiful, has beautiful food, lovely scenery. So definitely worth a visit. My seven-year-old who just got his tooth knocked out by dog is reading the Who Would Win series. I don't know if your children have discovered the Who Would Win series. No. They pit two animals against each other and then talk about like, well, I mean, it has a purpose. It talks about like their strengths, weaknesses, their predators, the whole nine yards. His current favorite book is The Tasmanian Devil and The Wolverine from Northern Canada. I mean, this is hypothetical. They would never meet, right? But it's... Not a great selling point for Tasmania when he's like before bed talking about like, and they're claws. <laughs> so like, but exciting nonetheless. Very, okay. very little and very endangered Tasmanian devils. So <laughs> that is not covered in the book. <laughs> Screenshot the horror pictures and they're all artistically drawn, but okay. Okay, so you went to university and got your PhD. What did you study for your PhD? Yeah, so I guess at that point where I, I was kind of hitting, you know, I need to do something, I want to do something else, I saw an opportunity to work with Dr. Pamela Dodrell. Um, do you know of her? Yeah, so. I have seen her talk a few times and I just like, She's wonderful. Yeah, she is. Well, she's a wonderful mentor and a wonderful friend. So she was living in Brisbane at that time. And so I saw an opportunity to work with her and study with her and decided to pursue this PhD under her guidance. So that was a really wonderful opportunity. And together, what we did was set up this randomized controlled trial that looked at comparing operant conditioning type therapy with systematic desensitization type therapy. So kind of looking at that top-down, therapist-led, extrinsically driven therapy versus more of a bottom-up, child-led, intrinsically driven therapy in our CT model. So we got a whole bunch of kids to sign up for the study between two and six years of age And we looked at them across three different subgroups. We looked at children with autism spectrum disorder, children with a medically complex background, and then also children with a non-medically complex background. So feeding disorder, but no other sort of known medical etiology or neurodevelopmental etiology. And then we also, within that program, offered for families to access the study either in an intensive format, so having all of their 10 sessions of therapy within a week or in a weekly format, so to come once a week and have a 10-session block. So the dose was the same, but it was spread out or pushed together just so that we could see whether there was any difference between those different intensity schedules. Yes, and then through that process as well, so it's a complicated study to explain, but I'll persevere. Okay, you're with me. So through that process as well, so we started off with a clinical assessment for the kids. So the parents would fill in a whole bunch of parent-reported outcome measures at the start. Uh, We did a clinical assessment with them to look at their oral motor skills, look at their different responses to foods, all of that stuff. And then they came for their 10-session block of therapy. And then three months after the therapy block had finished, we assessed them again in a clinical setting and looked at some of the changes and the parents repeated a whole lot of the measures that they did initially. Through that process as well, we offered a really structured parent coaching 
program as well. So each session we had two therapists running. So for some of the sessions, the parents were getting kind of education type information. So we provide them teaching about you know, what is sensory processing, how's positioning important, all of that sort of information. Wait, was it two SLPs? Was it two OTs or was it an SLP and an OT? Uh, we had a mixture of different professionals. So mostly though, two SLPs or an SLP and an OT. Okay, cool. Yeah. And then we had dietetics kind of consulting to give us information about what their dietary records were telling us and how they could direct our goals. Yeah, so this parent coaching program then had this educational component, but then it also had the therapy room and the teaching room were linked by a camera. So the second therapist would be observing the primary therapist working with the child and talking the parent through what was happening in the room. So they would be saying, oh, you know, have a look, see how he's pushing back there, see how he's splaying his fingers when Jean brings out the food. Gosh, he's really stressed. And see what Jean does to try and bring that stress level down for, for your little boy. And so therapists helping that parent understand that cues that that child was giving when previously that parent had interpreted a lot of those as naughty behaviour was really important. And then the third component of that parent coaching program was that the parents would take on components of the therapy. So they would be given the opportunity to go into the room and participate and do part of the therapy with the children with the aim that by the end of that 10-session block, they would be almost taking on the role of the therapist so that they could then generalise and use some of the strategies at home. Okay, so a very complicated kind of explanation. <laughs> no, I love it. So my next question is, um, when you're doing systematic desensitization, or you were doing the first one, it was operant. Is that what you referenced? Yeah, so was, like... Was it like a SOS approach, or were you using... Help me there. That's Yes, that's good to explain. So in the opera conditioning arm, we were using like a prompt and reward. So we were using toys, extrinsic motivators, an iPad. So we'd say take a bite, take a lick, and then you can get a turn of the toy. We did use a lot of shaping in our program though. So if the child wasn't ready to be taking a bite, we would take it right back down to, okay, take a touch, great you can have a turn of the toy. Take a touch, great, you can have a turn. And then we would move them up the ladder as they became more comfortable, dependent on what stress cues they were showing us. And then in systematic desensitization, it really was quite similar to SOS. So we would move them through at their own pace, but with play and modeling and that kind of exploration. When did you do this research study? We did this from 2012 to 2015 and there's a few publications so I can yeah, certainly Yeah, what are the publications? Why have I not read this? Yeah, I can certainly give you the details of those. So we have a few. Okay. I like how I'm pulling out my agenda so I can like write it in here. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it was a great study. It was called the HELP study, the Healthy Eating Learning Program. So after all of that explanation, the types of measures that we were looking at were parent-reported mealtime behaviours, dietary variety. So we looked at taking a three-day food diary and getting the dietitian to rate that, look at 
with the balance of all of the different macro and micronutrients, but also looking at food lists, so whether those things improve just practically on an everyday level for parents. We looked at taking measures of parental stress as well, and then we took measures of weight and height too. And the results were that the kids in general had really good response to the therapy, regardless of the therapy arm. So we'd set out to kind of try and answer the question about, oh, you know, is one therapy better than the other? Is that something that we can test? That type of information. But in the end, it actually showed that both were equally effective. So there were no significant differences between any of those subgroups, ASD, medically complex, non-medically complex. There were no differences between optimal conditioning and systematic desensitization arms in terms of outcomes. And there were no differences between intensive and weekly therapy in terms of that dose intensity either, which was, it was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, please tell me systematic was better from a play-based yeah. thing, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the way the study was designed, we only followed the kids up to three months afterwards. So there's potential that, you know, they may have continued to improve after that point, and I guess we didn't, we weren't able to continue capturing that. So that would be interesting to see a longer-term follow-up and whether that, you know, extrinsic versus intrinsic therapy results in better change for those kids. But I guess what really stands out to me and what I often think about in this program is, you know, the only consistent element was really that parent coaching. And I wonder if that's what made the difference in terms of, you know, all of the kids improved, or well, not all of them, but in general, the trend was, you know, we improved a lot. We demonstrated significant differences across those outcomes that we measured pre to post. But the parent coaching was the thing was that was the same throughout that program. So, yeah, I do find that really interesting and probably important to think about in terms of how we advocate for the importance of parent coaching. So here in the States, within the framework of our early intervention system, it is supposed to be caregiver-led parent coaching. So like that's what we're, we're not supposed to be doing direct service delivery with bags of tricks to do to conduct therapy. What we know and what the research tells us is caregiver coaching because we, I mean, we get, there's 168 hours in a week and we get one hour in the States um, and some places only get 30 minutes with the families. And that's all the state Medicaid's or the state insurances will pay for. But there is... Folks, I know I have said this on countless episodes. There is a killer website, the Family Guided Routines-Based Interview Intervention, and you do incorporate an interview in it. And I have the giant agenda right here by my feet because I was getting photocopies from my graduate student today. But this website guides you through how to ask questions to seek to understand where the child's expressive, receptive, neurogenic, even our tick phonology or fluency disorder, as well as their pediatric feeding disorder, how it impacts the course of the day. And that teaches you how to plug in your skill set to empower those caregivers to meet whatever the child's need is. So, I mean, it's available for free. So if anybody's listening, it's fgrbi.com. 
or dot org. I can't remember if it's a com or an org, but it'll get you there. But that's oh, that's a great tool. Yeah, great. I might have right? a look at that as well. <laughs> I haven't yeah, heard of that it, one. It's <laughs> wonderful. Dr. Juliana Woods is the researcher on that one. But yes, she's she's okay. So that she's wonderful. Juliana Woods is just she is a beautiful human being. She reminds me of like a fairy godmother. Yes. Okay. So you did this work with Dr. Dodrell 2012 to 2015. And then did that culminate in your PhD and then transition to your own research? Yes. Yeah. So that the initial part of that study was my PhD study. And then we ran another arm after I finished that study because we still had some extra funding. Um, yes. So, yes, that's, that's kind of, that was the, the culmination of my PhD, as you said. So I guess after that point, I ended up taking a little break from research sort of in the, the fall. I ended up going back to clinical work for quite a while. We had our two major hospitals in Brisbane um, merge. So we had, for some reason at that point, the way things had evolved, we had two children's hospitals in Brisbane. That's awesome. I don't how big is Brisbane? I have no idea. I also always thought it was called Brisbane. So now I've learned that it's Brisbane and not Brisbane. So Brisbane. Yes. I mean Brisbane is the biggest city in our state in Queensland. Sits about halfway down the east coast of Australia. And that's reasonably big now. I actually don't know the population off the top of my head. But yes, we had two two major children's hospitals. And those merged in 2014 to make the Queensland Children's Hospital, which is the hospital where I work. So, yes. I have found it. I have have a map. I have a map. So, she is northeast of Sydney. Yes. Okay. uh, I don't know how to do the conversion in miles. It's about a thousand kilometers north of Sydney. Sounds like an awful lot. I don't Sounds like I a lot. Sounds like a lot. Bear would be able to do the math like that and tell you how many 5Ks it is because he loves running 5Ks. Oh, it's about an eight-hour drive north of Sydney. Okay. Okay. Beautiful. Because, all right, so I assume that having two children's hospitals or having access to children's hospitals in general is geographic dependent because that's how it is here in the States. There's some places where, you know, a children's hospital could be an hour and away, 10 minutes away versus a half a day's journey away in some of our more populated States, like geographically located States. So, yes. So I'm also kind of wondering when you went back to clinical with all of that newfound knowledge, how was that on your heart? Like, how did you make, that's a really personal question, but to go with like all of that new charisma and then you're back in the clinic. I mean, did you feel defeated at first? Were you okay? How did you do? Uh, I did a little bit. And you know, it, it, it was hard because at that point the hospital was very much all about establishing services, establishing care, which was absolutely expected and fair at that point, but research really took a bit of a backseat. Is that like productivity? Yeah, yeah. Well, being able to focus on on research projects and things. I mean, I did, and I also, 
through those few years had a couple of children. So that also disrupts your, <laughs> your journey a little bit. Casually <laughs> popped out a couple of kids. We're fine. <laughs> so, I mean, I did, I did still engage as much as I could with my research program. I took on a wonderful student who I think you've had on your podcast as well, Dr. Madeline Ratz. Yeah, so I worked closely with Madeline um, and we did this big project looking at feeding uh, assessment via telepractice. Yes, that's what we did her episode. She she finished her PhD, what, a year ago? Yeah. A year and a half ago? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so that was wonderful to be involved with her. And then I also had this kind of side program going on looking at education and training for workforce in paediatric feeding. So that's been a lot of my focus over the past few years. And then at the beginning of last year, I was really lucky and blessed to get this new position. That is what's called a conjoint position. So it's a research-focused position that is co-funded by the hospital and health service and our university here as well, which is the University of Queensland. So at the moment, I'm sitting in this research-focused position that operates between those two facilities, which is wonderful. I was going to say, you get to be like part university, part academia, part clinician in a healthcare. Also, I'm dying to know, is that a Medela bottle over your left shoulder? Yeah, <laughs> I saw it. I was like, I know that bottle. I remember that pump. Okay, that. <laughs> I can see, folks. We Zencaster had an upgrade, so now I can see the audio, so I can get biofeedback response on whether or not my quirky jokes lands. But um, it also love <laughs> the conversation and my ADD, ADHD. But when you're in that capacity, does that mean when you were talking about the workforce continuum, do you get to train the SLPs that are within the healthcare system as well as mentor the students because that's kind of life goals right there. Yes, yeah. So that's that's a big part of what I get to do, which is amazing. And then, you know, through that this wonderful position, I've really been able to get my research trajectory back on track as well. So a big part of my job is building this research program again, which is wonderful. So I've got a, you're right. I was like, I want to hear what the research, tell us about the new research project. Yeah, well, I've got, I've been slowly building this research program based around PFD. That's kind of got four pillars that are evolving or four, I kind of think like four table legs maybe, I don't know. Um, <laughs> So one pillar is very much around this education and training part and that's probably my most well-established pillar because I've had those few years of building that up. Then I've got another pillar that's all around identification, accurate diagnosis of PFD and I'm keen to explore um, another pillar around management and I've got some wonderful students that I've taken on looking at things like PFD and food allergy, tube management, that kind of thing, and then a pillar around awareness and advocacy. So a lot, I've got a lot of things happening, which is really exciting, but a lot of them are probably too early to talk about in any great depth. But yes, lots of lots of movement at the moment, which is fantastic. 
but I am really happy to chat about my education and training experience and, and the, the different work that we've been doing in that area, if you're keen to hear. Um, yes. I truly, in my heart of hearts, I feel like when Aaron and I started this four years ago, we we just wanted to bring evidence to the world, but I didn't realize how much of a bridge the podcast would become for like expediting that research to practice because it makes it lively and dynamic and textbooks and journal articles are beautiful, but they get so sterile. But when we get to talk with the researchers that are doing it and like see y'all light up like it's Christmas or Hanukkah or pick your holiday, like that's just... Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, don't they say that it takes something like 17 years for research to be put into practice? Where I live, <laughs> I to 30 and we just had some laws passed that took us back about 120. So yeah, but it's even, it's like you say, you know, you weren't aware of the, the help study and the work that we did with that. So fantastic that I can share and, yeah. and get that research more well known. Yeah, there's lots of different, I mean, so social media is so useful for helping to share that research. Not does your always lab, useful. Does, does your lab have it? Well, I mean, yes. I mean, I'm sorry. When I have to watch somebody bust out a grind to bring evidence to the forefront, then that to me, I'm going to question everything that is happening if yep. it requires gyrations. But um, does your lab have a Instagram page or a Facebook page? Um, look, we don't actually. Um, so that is probably something I need to try and, and sort out. Yes, our facilities are reasonably strict about social media use, but they are improving. So okay, that would be we shall get there fun. and I shall share with you. Yes, let me know. Okay. All right, yeah. well then talk, talk to me about the education um, yeah. yeah, so I guess, and I think, I mean, I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, but potentially you guys have had similar issues in the States as we've had here in Australia. We've found that uh, what the clinicians are able to access at the university level in terms of education and preparation to work in the area of paediatric feeding is quite limited. And, I mean, I knew myself, I had been doing the teaching at the university just as a sort of external consultant for about 10 years and was able to provide the students with eight hours of lectures to prepare them to work in pediatric feeding. So it just really wasn't enough. And I guess that was coming through in how things were working in the real world because what would happen would be children would get this fantastic service at the tertiary hospital, at the Queensland Children's Hospital, but then there would be nowhere for them to go in terms of ongoing care because clinicians out in the community weren't feeling confident or competent enough to be able to see these children and, and care for them. So that is a big problem, basically. So I guess, yeah, a few years ago I set out to try and improve this problem, um, working with a few of our different clinicians in Queensland Health. So the first thing that we did was really to set up this big online learning package and because I guess people needed some of the theory and some of the knowledge that they weren't getting in as much depth as they needed at university. 
Um, and we used to run fairly frequent training programs at the hospital. So, you know, everybody would come and do a three-day PD and that would be their PD and then they'd go and, and try and work in the area. But it wasn't terribly effective in terms of reach. So, you know, you'd get 30, 30 or 40 clinicians that come and that would be it. And so we set out to create this more accessible online learning framework, basically. And the process of that was actually quite comprehensive. We got a wide group of about, I think it was 10 to 15 sort of expert clinicians from across the state to consult on developing this program. We developed all the different modules and then we sent them out for peer review as well so that we had sort of some level of quality assurance for that program. And we set that up online just as a freely accessible program for clinicians. What is it called? It's called the Pediatric Feeding Learning Framework, spelt pediatric with an A-E in the Aussie way. <laughs> Love it. Love so it. I can definitely provide some details about how to access that. But then I guess clinicians should just be aware that some of the information in it is probably specific to an Australian context, like some of the thicker products that we're talking about and that sort of thing. But yes, it, it is a wonderful program. It is multi-layered. So we have four different layers for the program. We have like a novice level part of the framework, and then we have foundation, intermediate and advancing. So clinicians can access different modules from across those different levels. And then, you know, if they've got a child coming in next week with a tongue tie, for example, they can do the module on tongue tie and, and feel like they're a little bit more prepared from a knowledge perspective. What about Alison Hazelbaker? Hazel Baker. Have you heard of her, Dr. Yes, Alison? Yeah, yeah. I love her. <laughs> I took I'm a CLC and right now in the States, like everybody has a tongue tie. I know we talked about this in our small group, but if you have any difficulties, you've won a tongue tie. If you can't sleep at night, you've won a tongue tie. And um, yeah, on that note, folks, we have two invited talks this year at the PFD conference that's part of ASHA in two weeks, and they're going to talk about why not everybody has a tongue tie. But she, in one of her online, because Dr. Hazel Baker has an online course to renew your CLC, and she goes, I am the founder of these assessments, and let me tell you, not everybody has one. <laughs> I was like, and she said it on camera, and then when she said it, I was like, you're my heroine. <laughs> but like, yeah, it's wild. I mean, we had a, a researcher here in Australia look at the incidence of tongue tie based on how many people were having procedures from 2006 to 2016, I think. And I'm probably going to quote it wrong, but I think the incidence increased like 600% or something. It was like insane increase in the amount of children having procedures to correct tongue tie. Yeah, wild. Right. Okay, so here is my working theory, and it's a theory. I think we're rushing. I think we're rushing. I think everybody is so used to a quick fix on all fronts. But if we look at how our mothers and grandmothers learn to breastfeed and bottle feed their children, we took time to allow the mothers to rest and recover. And we're not given that time period now. And it's rush, rush, rush. And I think 
that's the study I haven't seen and that's the study I want to see. So, mm. Mm. yeah, that is a good yeah. point. It's that medical model of I'll just, you know. And then be done. Do something and it's fixed, yeah. Yes, as opposed to allowing women to recover after giving birth is the closest we come to dying. Mm. I, um, yeah, that's mm. okay. Anywho, as anyway, I, we, we digress. Yes, digress. <laughs> Y'all, um, PFD planning committee is amazing. <laughs> Anywho, <laughs> so the learning package, I guess you know we've had in that over two thousand enrollments, uh, which is fantastic. Uh, we've had more than a thousand this year already. Is it only SLPs, or is it no? It's interprofessional, and yeah. the working party that delivered it was also interprofessional. So. That's, yeah, it's fantastic. And it's had international reach as well. So it is really, it's a great little program if anybody wants to do some free learning that's relatively well-developed and peer-reviewed in pediatric feeding. Congratulations. Yeah, that was good. So that's not all. (laughs) And it's not a (laughs) tongue-tie. So I guess... You know, we know that just that knowledge gathering on its own is not enough to develop clinical capability. Um, We can't just give people knowledge and expect them to feel competent to go and practice. They actually need the opportunity to apply that knowledge in practice in order to feel confident to use that knowledge. So from there, we did a few other things. So one of the things that we did was set up this tele-supervision program for clinicians, so kind of like a tele-mentoring program where clinicians could bring cases and questions. I kind of set it up a little bit like a clinic. So they'd book in, they'd come with their cases and questions and we'd discuss them and help them in this one-to-one type environment, which was really effective but wasn't quite enough reach to be reaching lots of people at the same time, that sort of thing. Allocating ongoing funding and everything was really difficult. Sustainability was challenging. And we really needed to work a little bit more to try and sort of broaden our effectiveness. So with that in mind, Dr. Ross and I set up this project using Project Echo. Have you heard of Project Echo before? Yes. But I don't rec- I don't recall how I've heard of this. It's basically like a virtual community of practice. So it's a virtual group tele-mentoring program. Okay. And it was originally established by a doctor in New Mexico who was seeing lots of inconsistencies with how medical professionals across different regional areas were managing hepatitis C and found that, you know, people were dying unnecessarily from hepatitis C when they didn't need to because of these inconsistencies of practice. So he set up this group tele-mentoring program and it's now a global phenomenon that's used across 180 cities internationally. Yeah. So we are really lucky at Children's Health Queensland that we are a Project ECHO hub. So we have a Project ECHO service established and through that we were able to set up we got some grant funding to set up this research program to set up a virtual community of practice for pediatric feeding that we call the ped feed network 
and this we got amazing. Yeah, it was. It was really, really good. So it was set up with a group of of interested clinicians who wanted to participate, and they were interprofessional participants, and then an interprofessional panel as well that sort of facilitated this Project Echo network. So for the research project itself, what we did was we ran eight 90-minute sessions for the clinicians and we looked at measuring changes in their confidence, in their satisfaction and a bunch of other experience measures that were also qualitative. So the preliminary findings from that project really positive. People have really liked it. They felt more confident and um, Madeline and I are in the final stages of writing this up and kind of deciding where to from here with this project. Like we'd really like to keep it going if we can broaden the influence as well. This is phenomenal. I'm right. sitting here. Y'all, it's University of New Mexico. Um, it's through their health department. I've been there. I've I've seen that building. This is amazing. Yeah. It's really, it was really a great program. And clinicians that wanted to engage in it were, got a lot out of it. So the way that sessions are structured and the reason we chose it was really because it had such a standardised structure, it would be easy to report in a research context. But usually at the beginning of the series, you do a bit of a training needs analysis, find out what people really want to know, what their gaps in knowledge are. And then at the beginning of each session for ECHO, there's usually like a little didactic teaching session where you say, okay, you know, we're going to spend 15 minutes just talking about different types of tubes or something like that. And then the second part of the session is then somebody from the group brings a case to discuss. So they present the case and the the whole group has an opportunity to ask questions, unpack the case figure out, you know, some more information about what's going on for that child. And then after that, the group as a whole make recommendations for the person and suggestions and everything's kind of put into a summary at the end. So what it it tended to do was just to help that person really think through that case a lot more and hear some interprofessional sessions, uh, suggestions from across the group. So the way that ECHO is designed, they really aim to make it a peer learning experience rather than an expert-driven experience. So it's very much like an all-teach-all-learn principle with this idea that everybody can learn something from everybody else because, you know, in our setting, we work in a tertiary hospital. We don't know what it's like for a clinician working in rural Queensland like we don't know exactly what their experience is like and what resources they have and that sort of thing. So the information that they could bring and, and teach us is also invaluable. So really important. Um, and we try to make it really clear from the beginning that it's, it's very much a peer learning experience. I want to volunteer with this. <laughs> this is very cool. Yeah. Okay. Well, this publication's coming, so yeah, <laughs> it's very I, exciting. I, I need to know more about that. That's phenomenal. When yeah. you guys publish, come back. You, you, and um, 
and yes, Maddie. That, yeah. Yeah. I was gonna say I was gonna say she doesn't go by Madeline because when I called her Madeline, she giggled and was like, No, I'm a Maddie. <laughs> no, but like, she's Maddie. Yeah. <laughs> I have to I try to call her Dr. Ross. <laughs> I know, but like that's that's our sweet friend Kristen's really close to getting her final stage of her doctorate. And I'm like, it's the almost Dr. Kristen West. And I'm like on the phone with her with the boys and they're like, okay, almost doctor. So we have yeah. got one more component of our education research program that I'm keen to talk to you about. That is using simulation. Have you heard much about simulation before? Hi, I've seen it done and I've seen it done not well. Yes, <laughs> I'm sorry. They have they have a simulab case. And it's through an entity, but I don't believe that the videos were peer reviewed because the one little boy that had a 2B and YouTube feeds in the video also had status post-traumatic brain injury, non-accidental trauma. There was a whole bunch of stuff going on. And in the video, they were doing non-speech oral motor exercises, did not discuss any tube weaning protocols. And I was like, who vetted this? We don't do any of these things. Also, where is this child's communication device? And I was like, I have a problem. So there's there's my so yes, I've seen it done and seen it done okay. not well. So. so that is not how we do simulation. <laughs> <laughs> Please come to the states. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, gosh, I mean, I I really love simulation. I find that it is an absolutely amazing learning modality that really allows clinicians to practice clinical skills without the risk of having a patient in front of them. And that's what it should be. Yes. We've used it at Queensland Children's. We've used it for a really long time for our workforce education, particularly in infant and toddler feeding education. And you can really use it to practice different components of assessment. So we can practice, you know, teaching how to put the infant in different positions. We can practice, you know, using pacing with the infant. And we can practice those communication and clinical skills. We can practice talking through decision-making for different points of that assessment and management journey with that, that baby or toddler. So what we tend to do is... Use, we tend to work through this process as a group with clinicians and make decisions together at each critical point. So, are they C? Wait, do y'all have a CF or is it just a straight you graduate and then go through? We don't have a CF here. So, it is quite different. Yeah. Okay. So, the first, the first few years of, of clinical practice is a fairly steep learning curve, but clinicians do receive a, a fair amount of supervision during those first few years of practice as well. Okay. Because I was just trying to pinpoint when you were talking about training the clinicians, if they were like newer clinicians or just newer to PFD or both. Both. Yeah, both. Yeah, both. So we do use this teaching and I've been working closely with a colleague here at the university. We've been using simulation for pediatric feeding much more in the university setting as well now. Mm -hmm. So all of our students get exposure to actually practicing some of the strategies, practicing working through a PFD case together in that simulated means. So, yes, do you, like, can you conceptualize what a simulated learning opportunity would look like? Well, 
I think it's hard if you haven't done it. So I can talk it through more specifically if it's helpful. When I'm when I'm filtering it, I'm filtering it through the practice online cases, which were Q&A heavy and not realistic. But then I also, so my background before, I, um, I owned my own private practice and then I went to a university and set up their PFD clinic and did that for 18 months and then had to walk away for sanity. Um, and so yes, walked away and I'm, I do private practice and then this, but within that university setting, I worked with our Sims lab and their mannequins. And so we set the mannequins up in the beds and we were facilitating, it was really, really cool. And we were doing orientations for adult patients and like how you approach the bed, how you talk with them. And we hadn't evolved to the point of including pediatrics into the Sims before I was like. Yeah. So that that is similar to what it's like. Although, for example, in an infant feeding Sim, what we would do is have someone acting as what we call the confederate parent holding the baby mannequin. So I think this is part of why I like Sim is because I really love doing amateur theatre and I often get to... (laughs) I often get to be the confederate parent, so it like it it allows me to channel my inner actor. (laughs) My inner actor. People, when she does that, her whole demeanor and composure changes. It's awesome. Oh my! You, you, yes, that's amazing. Uh I do love it, but yeah. So, I mean, on a practical level, what happens is we present the the learners with a case. And we unpack that case, we read some medical notes, go through, you know, and talk about, okay, what are our our hypotheses? What are we thinking we're going to take along to this appointment with this baby? What are we going to plan to do? Do we need to have PPE? All of that sort of thing. So we can really prepare the learners for what's going to happen in that situation. And then they go and visit the, the parent and the baby and they do a case history. So that's all obviously prepped. So I've kind of got a script in my head or the Confederate parent has a script in their head in terms of how they answer that clinician in their practice. And then we work through doing like an oral reflex exam maybe if it's a little baby. Um, And then we work through doing observations of the feed and making decisions about, okay, well, that didn't go so well. Let's see if we can change the nipple. Let's see if we can change, put some pacing in that practice. Can we change the positioning for that baby, etc.? And you've kind of got these scripted responses that you're working through with the baby in terms of what's happening during that simulation. And then at the end, usually the learner kind of pulls it all together and we talk through providing recommendations, etc. So it's a really practical learning opportunity and I do get to harness my inner, inner actor. <laughs> So I met this, I have a sweet friend from Mississippi, Brianne Dalton, and she's also been on the podcast because she's an adult Tubi user. And she talks all about her gastroparesis and how like her Tubi helps other, like her pediatric little ones comfortable with. She's actually an amateur actor. She acts on the side. And so like, if you need someone, I totally volunteer her. She would, she would be the perfect person. Yes. So Brianne, if you're listening, honey, I found you a job in Australia, darling. (laughs) Your mom will kill me. But we had our mannequins were programmed in the Sims lab. Yeah, you can get high fidelity mannequins. Oh, oh, they were fancy. 
Yes, because every once in a while, the program manager, he would just randomly make the adults scream for no reason. Never seen students jump. I mean, I definitely let some colorful vocabulary fly when, like, he just sat up in bed and started screaming. And, but so, folks, be prepared. Nice. The sin clubs are pretty high tech. <laughs> it's amazing, though, how that, like, actually practicing the learning and scripting what you're going to say in that kind of learning scenario is so helpful for solidifying, like, what what you're going to do in real clinical practice though. Like I will never forget I did, and it was just when I was learning about SIM, I went and did an adult trackie SIM crack and they went through the simulation and they're like, who's going to volunteer? So I volunteered and blah, 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 went in and tried to put a speaking valve on this patient without deflating the cuff. You know, uh, often, I don't know what it's like in the States, but in Australia, in peds, we don't often have a cuff tracking in children and babies. And I will never forget. <laughs> like, I will never do that again because I had that experience. I had that experience in sim, though, and it was safe and everything was okay, but it, it was so useful to have that experience, even though it was mildly traumatic. <laughs> oh, my God. God. Anyway. That's great. Yes, because and those are the opportunities that we need. So folks, if you are listening and say your husband is an engineer or your partner is an engineer or in Sims, reach out to your local university and volunteer your time and services for practicing. Yes. Sounds fantastic. So I guess that was kind of a preface to us loving sim, sim lovers. But the biggest problem with sim, again, is that accessibility thing. So because Australia and Queensland are such a big place, we could only train people who are immediately local to us. So this year we've set out to explore the concept of tele-simulation. So we have done a big feasibility project looking at, okay, can we do it? What do we do to set it up? How can we make it sort of look as real as possible in terms of helping people to access the education via tally? And so through that project, we found that it was feasible and that people were generally satisfied. They liked it. They thought it was good, etc. And from there, we've run and adjust in the final stages of data collection for an RCT. So we've looked at getting people in to do an in-person simulation and then getting another group of people to do a tele-simulation so we could we can compare the learning outcomes from those two different types of simulation. And so far the results are looking really promising. So we are excited that hopefully we'll be able to continue to deliver simulation in a more accessible means. That's fantastic. Also that it stresses the point of counselling. Because when you're doing sims, you have to be able, especially if you're coaching that caregiver and positioning the baby and pacing, you're literally focusing on counseling. And that's a piece that I feel like we are missing being taught the bare bone basics of pediatric feeding disorders at a university level, but we're also missing the bare bone basics on simply how to counsel patients or caregivers during a period in their life when they could be going through grief cycles and there 
in the trenches having PTSD and yeah absolutely and it it is so useful to get people to practice exactly how they're going to say also to be able to watch other people and sort of go oh that that went well or that didn't go so well what can we do to make that go better how could I say that better it really gives them an opportunity to practice that skill so I totally agree it's not always about the skills like okay I know when to do pacing or I know to choose a slow flow nipple it's actually about the communication that is able to be practiced through that simulation modality so y'all if you're listening and you're a younger clinician or if you're a student or if you're contemplating being a clinical supervisor yesterday I went out to do my third appointment with the patient and I used this as this is why counseling is just as key We had done our clinical swallow evaluation. I had copies of his most recent instrumental swallow evaluation, which were inconclusive and did not provide any physiologic etiology as to why we were aspirating and warranted a G-tube, which is frustrating in and of itself. We had our IFSP, Infant Family Service Plan, that's part of federal law in the states for IDEA birth to three. And then I follow it up with my third visit of doing the routines-based interview, finding out where these breakdowns are. And we're talking about going through this caregiver's day. What is it like? How are your emotions? What time do you need to allocate for um, prepping of the bottles that have to be thickened and like seeking to understand these skills, right? And some of the questions that my students started asking were, you could see it triggering on this mom. And then lo and behold, to find out, this is my third time in this woman's house. The early interventionist had been there. Nobody related to me. Before the birth of the child we're working with, she had a 28-day-old baby that died of SIDS, and it was his anniversary. That moment of we have to completely pivot and treat her where she is in her grief cycle and pulling community supports because on Maslow's hierarchical scale, she can't meet me where I need to be to work with her son that's here because she is bare bone basics of that yeah, triangle. She's just getting by. <laughs> yes. But like, this is why through a Sims opportunity, you have that opportunity to embed You can engineer engineer the situation to be exactly what you need it to be. Yes. I mean, we stopped everything. Everybody had a good cry. We patched her up. 24 hours later, we've gotten counseling supports that are free. We've pulled in community supports because that's what a village does, right? We make another leg on the table. She needed five legs, so we gave her a fifth. But like to piggyback on your research for pillar table leg conversation. (laughs) How I circled back around. Hey, I may have ADD, but I have a lot of notes. <laughs> okay, so we joyfully went over because I always do. But is there anything that we did not get to today that you want to cover? No, I think that was that was all I had planned to cover. But this is yeah. amazing. You are amazing. You and Dr. Ratz are doing profound work. Oh, thank you. We are, yeah, trying to fly the flag for PFD in Australia. <laughs> yeah, but the sim stuff. After we're done, I have an idea. So you'll have to 
hang with me. (laughs) Okay. So if somebody wants to reach out to you, maybe they want to assist or volunteer their time or figure out how they could replicate something similar or expand upon it here in the space with their research. How do they reach you? Yeah. I mean, is it best? I'm happy for them to reach me by email. Um, So will you put my email in some communications or just a do I say it now? You can say it now and we can tag it in, baby. <laughs> okay. So emails gene.marshall at health.qld.gov.au. And my first name is J-E-A-N-N-E dot M-A-R-S-H-A-L-L. I would have had to write it. <laughs> and it's my own name. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Now, if somebody, as Grandma Wood would have said, whose picture is right there. But if grandma would have, would have said, if there's a little bit of love money lying around and they want to make a donation to support PFD, where would you recommend that they support? What is your go-to nonprofit? Um, I think probably directing that funding into Feeding Matters would be the best place. Yeah. Yes. Feeding Matters, we love you. (laughs) Okay. I'll make sure to check out their Feeding Matters Instagram account, Feeding Matters Facebook account. Dr. Marshall is apparently setting up an Instagram account for her lab in the not too distant future. And I'll be sure to tag that. As always, hit Aaron and I up on the First Bite podcast Instagram account and the Facebook page. And we love reading the reviews that y'all share with us on Apple Podcasts. Trust me, we systematically check those every single morning. Go team. But Dr. Marshall, thank you. I'm glad we could absolve thunderstorms, bloody knocked out teeth, poopy hamster cages, and an internet crash on Zencaster to make today happen. Oh, and time zone changes. So thank you. Yeah, it happened. Fantastic. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Hey, so it's Michelle Dawson here, and I need to lay out my disclosure statements. So uh, if you ever wondered how bad my ADD, ADHD, and lack of sleep 
Monday through Monday actually as well. Here you go. These are my non-financial disclosure statements. I volunteer with Feeding Matters. I'm a former treasurer with the Council of State Association Presidents. I'm a past president with the South Carolina Speech Language Hearing Association. I am a current member of both ASHA and Skisha. And for this year, for 2021, I volunteered for the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Planning Committee for the ASHA 2021 convention. My financial disclosures. All right. So I receive compensation for first bite presentations, as well as talking teletherapy and understanding dysphagia from speechtherapypd.com. I also receive royalties from speechtherapypd.com for ongoing webinars that I have on their website, as well as compensation from PESI Incorporate for a lecture course that a webinar that I have on their website as well. I am coordinator for clinical education and clinical assistant professor for the Masters of Speech Language Pathology program at Francis Marion University in Florence, South Carolina, for which I receive an annual salary. I also receive royalties from the sale of my book, Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders that I self-published and is available on Amazon. And I do receive royalties from the accompanying 13 and a half hour CEU for the book from speechtherapypd.com. So yeah, I stay pretty busy, but those are my financial and non-financial disclosures. If you ever have any questions, please feel free to reach out. All right. Thanks y'all. Bye.